continuing a series called In, Not Of. And the uh, main idea that we're um, wrestling with or looking at through this series has been that principle from Scripture that we learn in the New Testament when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we begin to follow him, that we are called out of the world in a sense. We're called to live differently. We no longer live like everyone else does because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're not just citizens of this earth. And so uh, the truth is, though, that God uh, leaves us here so that we're still in the world. We live here. Our lives uh, look the same in a lot of ways, but we're not of the world any longer. We belong to Jesus. We follow God, his instructions to us, the way he wants us to live. And so in this series, we're looking at an example of this from the Old Testament found in the book of Daniel. If you want to follow along, we'll be in chapter three this week of the book of Daniel. And uh, we're uh, just a little bit of a recap. We've got uh, four young men who are kind of the heroes of our story. We're following their interactions with uh, a nation empire they find themselves within called the, uh, the Babylonian Empire in um, Ancient times, there were some world powers that came to the surface and ruled, began to conquest the world. The first one was uh, that we kind of look at in this time period was the Assyrian Empire. And uh, we see the Assyrians in the book of um, Jonah, in the story of Jonah going to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and they were a world empire for a time. And now we're looking in the book of Daniel at the Babylonian Empire, which rose to power, had a far superior military force, conquered the Assyrian Empire and took over and began to expand the world. And in 605 BC, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, attacked the southern kingdom in the nation of Israel, which was Judah, and took them captive. Now, after Solomon's reign, Solomon was the third king um, of Israel. Remember, there was Saul and then David and then Solomon. Solomon grew the uh, nation of Israel probably to its largest and most prosperous. He, was, he had that wisdom and that ability uh, to grow things, and he did a great job. It was wealthy, and of course, he built the temple, and he built up the nation. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. In the power struggle to see who would take over, the, the kingdom split. And so there was a southern kingdom, which was made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And then the other eight tribes of the um, ten tribes of Israel were, made up the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom moved into idolatry. The kings that led it moved them away from God. The southern kingdom had within it the uh, capital city of Jerusalem and the temple. And so there was some worship of God. Judah wasn't perfect either, but there was some worship of God present in the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been defeated by the Assyrians years ago in 722 BC. And the nation of uh, uh, the southern kingdom, Israel, or excuse me, Judah, was conquered through um, the nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So you got a little history lesson there. This is what's going on in the world. And uh, at this time, and so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were four young men, probably teenagers, who were probably um, of, um, they had good pedigree. They were, um, came from good families in Israel. And so Nebuchadnezzar took them along with many others and put them through a training program for his 
empire. He wanted them to become rulers and leaders. And so they went through that training program. In chapter one, we saw that they um, went through a test as far as who they would be aligned with and how they would live. They are in a pagan empire under a pagan king and they're being offered things that they could not do because of their allegiance to God. And one of those things was the food they were offered by the king. They determined it would break the dietary laws that they had been raised under and how they'd been trained and so they couldn't do it. And they had the commitment and the desire to stay true to God, follow him with their lives. And so they went to Ashpenaz, who was in charge of this training program and said, hey, we, we, don't want it. we can't eat this food, we can't drink this wine. And he, of course, put them under a test. They passed it. God blessed them. They stood strong. They, I, they were in the world, but not of the world. When we think about what it means to live in the world, but not of the world, we think about, in part, what it means to follow Jesus. And to become a, a follower of Jesus is to be called out, right? It's, it's to be the, these people that are no longer of the world. We don't do everything the world does. And so what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower and, and I think it falls into two categories and these young men exemplify these categories. One is that we live differently. We have a different moral code. There's different behaviors, the way we talk, the way we treat people, the way we interact in the world we live in. There's things that we can't do. We say no to those things. We say yes to what God wants us to do. There's always a positive to every no. There's a yes, right, that God gives us. We begin to change our lives and our behaviors to match up with the, the character uh, and the morality, right, of God. Because we belong to him. We're part of his church. We're, we're his people. So that's one aspect of discipleship or being a follower of Jesus. The second is that we follow Jesus' example in being a part of advancing the mission of God or the cause that Jesus came to the earth to accomplish, which was to rescue the human race. And so Jesus had 12 disciples that he raised up and trained in righteousness. He also trained them in how to live out the mission, how to reach other people. And so to be a disciple, I think, involves those two categories. It's to undergo a life change, to surrender how we live to God and honor him. And it's going to take a fight to do that. The easiest thing will be to do what everyone else does and to fall into the culture and to live like everyone else. That'll be the easiest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to stand true to God. And these young men passed that test. They stood true to God. They set themselves apart as belonging to God. And then they were tested. This week, the test is pretty profound. The question we want to ask today as we engage the third chapter of the book of Daniel and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the test that they encounter is we're going to ask this question of them, and I think the question is asked of us as well. Will you bow down? Will you bow down? Following chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an amazing statue that scared him. Daniel was able to tell him the meaning of the dream, that God was revealing something to him about the future. Following that, into chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar builds... And he wrecks an enormous statue. Um, he builds a gold-plated statue of a, of a man. The appearance of a man, it's 90 feet tall. I think a telephone pole is about 30 feet. So like three of those stacked on top of each other. A nine-story building, maybe you've been into one of those. A massive undertaking. 
in this era. Certainly the Egyptians had built some huge, monstrous um, idols and, and, and edifices and structures, but this was impressive. And so he builds this statue and then he does something that causes our young men to face this test. He, King Nebuchadnezzar, demands that everyone worships his statue. Follow along as I read the first three verses of Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messengers to the high officials, or high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As I said, maybe the dream that he had inspired it, that some Bible teachers believe that, this dream of a statue inspired him to build one. Obviously his interaction with God had not caused him to have a change of heart to begin to worship God because he wasn't doing that. He was following the religion of his culture and he was establishing worship for all the people that he had amassed and brought into his empire, perhaps to ensure that there was unity, uniformity, that everyone was following the same thing. That means we're moving together. Maybe he was um, trying to control people with that last bit of power, controlling people's focus of their worship in this era would have been um, a, a massive part of everyone's lives. And so to force them to worship his God and the God of Babylon would have uh, been an act of submission and surrender for the entire group of people that he was now leading. But these young men, you know, they come into this uh, situation and we think about times where um, we do that. I know I got out of high school. I'd been raised in a Christian home. I'd heard a lot about the Bible. I'd studied it and I'd made a decision to trust in Jesus. And at times I followed him, at times I didn't. But I got to college and the college I went to was a Bible college. And the first week we had a speaker who spoke for a number of messages and, and really challenged us to commit 100% of our lives to following Jesus. And that was powerful for me. I, I went forward in an altar call and I, I really, in my heart, said, God, I, I want to follow you with everything. Well, I know at the same time, there were some of my peers, my generation, that got to live and grow up in the 80s, which is such a great decade. But uh, some of them went off to university and they were pressed in their first week of school or first month of school to move away from this false belief system that you were raised up under, this hocus pocus stuff. The Bible is outdated and is clearly not true. So they were pressed to move away from. Now, some of them did, but some of them stood strong in the midst of that pressure, that challenge. These young men faced that kind of environment. They were pressed and challenged to give up Yahweh and the follow of, uh, following him to live under a pagan regime and worship the gods. The problem is because they had been trained as young men, perhaps because Judah was still the place where the temple was, perhaps because many of the priests 
fled to Judah after the kingdom split. Maybe that's why the environment was rich for them to be trained as young men who love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they had been trained to, to live for God and to follow him and to worship him alone. And so this challenge that being in the Babylonian empire was going to bring into their lives was one they were prepared to handle. See, in the face of a challenge to worship another God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar put it this way, everybody in the kingdom is going to come to the plain of Dura and I'm going to unveil this statue and everyone's going to bow down and worship when the music begins to play. And so this is what everyone did. That day came and went. Nebuchadnezzar thought, great. Looks like everyone attended. Looks like everyone answered my request. We're on track here. Everybody's lined up. And then some of the astrologers, some of the leaders in his kingdom came and said, hey, king, there's a problem. Some of the guys that you've put into positions of authority, they didn't bow down. Daniel chapter three, verse 12. Some of the astrologers came to the king and they got an audience with him and this is what they said. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, by the way, didn't, didn't bow down either. He's not in the story. We're not sure where he's at. Perhaps he's in the palace. Perhaps he was too high up in the kingdom to be challenged and questioned. I don't know. But our story involves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were out in the, in the country in different positions of leadership but these astrologers said, um, these three guys whom you put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. You know, it's interesting their approach to this stance that they had to take. They um, didn't try to generate a movement on social media and try to get a whole gathering of people to join them in resistance to this evil king, empire, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was trying to make them bow down. You know, there's a lot of other Jewish boys and Jewish people that they could have tried to rally to resist. They didn't do that. The, uh, what it appears to have happened in the, in the account is that they just didn't bow down, kind of quietly, not really making a scene, not really making a big deal out of it. They just, they just didn't do it. And of course, the law of Moses, they knew that they couldn't bow down to any other God, but to Yahweh. They loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was a creator God who had made all things. There was no other God but him. And so bowing down to a statue, to a gold image, no matter how impressive, was just not in the cards. It wasn't possible. There's no way they could do that. The problem is, I forgot to mention that the king, along with the decree to worship, as you probably know if you've heard this story, wasn't just a suggestion that people would come and join him in this big event, worshiping this new statue that he erected. It wasn't just a suggestion. There was a little bit of incentive put in in that. He said, if you don't come and bow down, I'll throw you into a fiery furnace and burn you alive. There was a little bit of pressure that he used to force people's behavior in the right direction. These astrologers that came to rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
You know, there was no way they were going to allow them to get away with something. Some of them might have come from other countries too with other gods and they wanted to worship their gods. Why did they have to bow down to the statue? They're not going to allow this to go on. These guys are supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be exemplary, right, in the, in the empire. And for them to get away with not doing what the king said just wasn't going to work. We face times where we're asked to bow down. And uh, to my knowledge, there's not been an idol erected that we've all been asked to worship. But we certainly have idols and gods in our culture that we're asked to bow down to. And we're pressured to do so. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were successful young men. They had graduated top of their class and they were at great careers in the empire. It was the happening thing. Uh, Babylon was ruling the world. They were a part of it. They were in the middle of it and they were doing really well. Coming up against a test of their allegiance, I assure you, wasn't just an easy decision to make or a flippant one. It might've been easy in the sense that they knew what they had to do, but it wasn't a flippant one where they said, oh, no problem here. We'll just go ahead and not bow down in the face of execution and a horrific one at that. In the face of the possibility of being, um, it being revealed what we've done. There's a time in the history of the early church that reminds me of this same kind of situation in a way. We find it in Acts chapter 5. You know, um, the day of Pentecost had come and the early church believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to preach and proclaim the good news. And after that, there was a kind of a movement that started and it really started in Jerusalem where um, those that had responded to the message of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, Savior of the world, died, buried, and rose again. People responded to that by putting their faith in Jesus, realizing that he was the Son of God, not just a great teacher, but he was God in the flesh who had died to pay for the sins of the world. And they responded to that and they became a part of a church in Jerusalem that was growing. It was electric. There was a buzz about it. They met at Solomon's colonnade daily. They were um, listening to the apostles teaching and they were praying together and there was a fellowship there that was growing. It was powerful. And there were miracles taking place. People, if they, they found that if they took a sick relative as someone that was struggling with a health issue and they just got him or her in the place where Peter, as he walked, his shadow would fall on them, that they'd be healed. Now, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, weren't real happy about this movement exploding. They thought when they got rid of Jesus, they would kill the whole thing, and they didn't, and it was actually blowing up. And so they brought the apostles in and they said, hey, guys, quit preaching this message of Jesus. You're embarrassing us. You're telling everybody it was our fault that he's dead. Stop it. And they threw him in jail overnight. Let him cool. Shut down the fire, you know, put him out. Problem is in the night, an angel came and opened the doors to the prison and told them to get back out and start preaching again. So they did as all of us would do if an angel told us to do something, right? So they went back out preaching. The next day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they heard they were out preaching again. They brought them back in. Hey, fellas, maybe you didn't understand, but we told you to quit. Quit preaching this message. And famously, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the response goes this way. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. 
The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. In this case, they're clear. When we're being asked to stop proclaiming a message that God has told us to proclaim, we do not have a choice. We appreciate earthly authority. In the, in the book of Romans written by Paul, the apostle, as the Holy Spirit inspired him, so it's God's words to us, we're told to respect earthly authority, to submit to earthly authority. And so these guys were not in rebellion against earthly authority, but they came into a situation where they were being asked by authority to do something that God, who is supreme to earthly authority, had told them to do. And so the early church was submissive to authority, and yet their very existence was as a rebellious, illegal religious movement. Being a part of the way was not sanctioned by Rome and therefore was illegal. That's why they faced so much persecution from the Roman Empire. But they were compelled to preach the message while at the same time, as best they could, living under earthly authority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not rebellious young men. They were submitting to Nebuchadnezzar. They were following his instructions. They were doing the best they could to be good employees for him, to be good leaders within his empire. But he asked them to do something that would cause them to be disobedient to the God that they worshiped and followed. So they couldn't do it. I don't know if you faced things like this in your life. You probably have. I, I think of a time in my life where I was working at a retail store called Staples and, and, uh, and worked in Atlanta when we lived there, kind of started. And, and then when we moved to Denver, I was able to transfer and help open a new store. And so I got to work with this whole team from the very beginning and we had a great team and things worked really well. And, it was a great time to be doing that, I guess, but I was able to uh, really succeed at the job I was given. You know, I had to do some computer sales and, and some tech work and things I didn't really know much about, but as I worked in the job, I started to learn, but I really saw God bless my efforts. There were things that happened consistently that I had nothing to do with that God just blessed my efforts. And, uh, and so the day came when there was a conversation one evening about the Bible and what it says about different things. And, and uh, I was asked a question. I was able to help answer it. And, and then a complaint was lob, uh, lodged by one of the employees about this conversation, that it was offensive and hurtful. And so the general manager and the district manager came in and they had a conversation with everybody. What was this? What happened? And what did you say? And told them. And as everyone did in the end of it, they said, well, you know, Here's the answer. You just need to quit talking about religious stuff. Like, just quit talking about it. We're working here, you know? It just causes problems. Just quit. So I left that meeting uh, kind of discouraged and pretty depressed, to be honest. I thought about it over the next couple of days. I thought, well, well listen, um, I follow Jesus. <laughs> and being a Christian is not just something I believe in. It's who I am. And I had talked a lot about um, all kinds of things and among them were things having to do with the Bible. And turned out, I found out a lot of people wanted to talk about that stuff. I wasn't pushing anything on anyone. None of my fellow employees felt offended by me. I wasn't beating them up, you know, trying to 
convert them to anything, but I was just being who I was. And I love Jesus and I follow him and I talked about it. It's part of my life. Just like one of my coworkers partied every weekend. He talked about that. You know what I mean? It's just something he did. He enjoyed. So I was like, well, how am I going to do this? I started to think about, how am I going to cut off this part of who I am? How am I going to contain it, hold it in? And I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I did get, I was really discouraged and depressed. And my sales manager, I wasn't usually that way, right? So he came up one day, a couple days later, and he said, man, what's going on? You doing all right? And I said, well, I'm kind of struggling with things. And he kind of knew what was going on. And uh, he stood there with me a minute and finally just said, you know what? You just be who you are. And this is my pagan sales manager who didn't know anything about Jesus, certainly didn't follow him. <clears throat> he was the partier that talked every... Anyway, he just kind of gave that and it was just like, oh, yeah. Like, I, this is who I am and I got to just be who I am. This is who God made me to be. It's who he's called me to be. I can't stuff this stuff inside and hold it, hold it back and keep it out of the environment. And so I just decided that um, that's what I was going to do. And I started doing that again. And, and I had to make the decision that even if it meant it was going to lead and escalate to other things, I was willing to accept that those consequences. It didn't. I never got talked to again about it. Pretty sure I went back to being the same person I was before the incident. I don't know how you've seen it work in your life, the tests that you've faced, but there's times guys, that we're going to have to wrestle with what we're being asked to do. And if it means to disobey what God's told us to do and called us to do, then we might have to really take a stand and say, you know what, I, I just can't do that. These young men face the greatest of tests through this encounter with Nebuchadnezzar because they're asked to bow down to an idol, to a statue. They can't do it. And the consequence, as I shared, was being burned alive. These guys have faced death before. Remember, they were going to be executed because of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And this is the second test. But this one is a big one because they personally are on the hook for what they've done. And the king of the world is staring them in the eyes. And this is what he says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15. To Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. He obviously likes these guys. They're good employees. They've been doing a good job. I don't want to throw you in the furnace. Hey, fellas, I'll give you one more chance. I know, I don't know, something happened there. You, you just, you had a glitch. You had a breakdown in, in uh, uh, did, you know, you're, you're knowing what to do in the situation. You're young. But if you refuse, he says, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Being burned alive in a furnace was the thing for the Babylonian empire. It wasn't new. This is something that they practiced. You know, the Romans had crucifixion that they held over people's heads, that they terrified people with this gruesome way to die. And being burned alive in a furnace was what the Babylonians were known for. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is a prophet who prophesies during this era. In uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 22, we read this. Jeremiah now speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, 
who the king of Babylon burned alive. So this was done. You know, the furnace was probably a kiln that was used to melt and smelt the gold that was used to build this statue. These existed in ancient times and metalwork was something that they were, uh, had discovered and worked at. And so this kiln or furnace was used probably for that purpose. It probably was there close at hand because it had been used to build a statue. These uh, kilns or furnaces look kind of like the old milk jars that the milkmen, when they used to deliver the milk to the, to the houses, it's before my time, I'm not that old. Um, but, but, but anyway, that, that's kind of probably what they looked like. That shape had a hole at the bottom where they could fuel and feed the fire. And then probably halfway up or some point there was the spot where there was another opening where the crucible uh, could be um, accessed. The crucible is the, the metal piece that the metal, the gold and whatever metal they were working with would be melted in. And so this is probably what the furnace was. And uh, it was close at hand and easy to use. But again, the Babylonians were known for this kind of execution style. Something would have terrified everyone. These furnaces could get up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, so plenty hot, right? These young men faced this challenge, this test. Not an easy one. Hey, guys, I'll give you a second chance. Let's have another go at this. It's not over. If you bow down, I won't throw you in the furnace. In uh, verses 16 through 18, I think some of the most powerful verses in the Bible, a response to a test by three young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Respectful, not angry, not fighting, just firm in the truth. Standing in who they were, standing with the God who they belong to, in the world but not of the world. They're on trial but they don't mount a defense. Their worship of God. You, you can look at this as an act of defiance against uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I kind of think it was more an act of worship to God. See, they did love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They followed him with everything they were. To bow down to another God, there's no way they could do it. They knew the one true God. They, they belonged to him. They knew the power that he had. He was far more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, though Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. When you're asked to bow down, um, it will be by powerful people in powerful situations that dictate your life and, and have a say in where you go and how far you make it. And seemingly they'll be able to control your future sometimes. These guys had, again, great careers. They were a part of something really powerful that was moving and shaking. And they were faced with a challenge and a test they did not want. They didn't go looking for it. 
It came to them. And yet in the middle of it, their response was the only response they could make. What I find most inspirational is they say, unlike me so often, okay, God, I want to obey you. You know, if I obey you, though, there's blessing tied to that, right? You'll benefit me. You'll help me out. You'll keep me from harm. You'll, right? I don't know. Maybe you don't play that. I, I do sometimes. It's like, God, you know, I've been obedient to you and I've sacrificed for you and then bad things still happen. How does that work? Boy, these guys don't seem to wrestle with that at all. They're just like, hey, yeah, even if this costs us personally, we're not bowing down. The tests that we face are real and they're intense. And you have and will, and it seems to me we live in a time where maybe the intensity of those tests might escalate, that the challenges to live in a culture that doesn't believe what we believe, doesn't want us to believe what we believe, really has a rejection of the Bible as a source of truth. And it's an old-fashioned, out of date. It's keeping us from going where we need to go as a culture. Come on, get that out of the way. Give that up. You're stuck in the mud. Let's move past that. And yet we know that the Bible is the very words of the God who created the universe. <laughs> what, what else are we going to do? We can't go worship some other thing. I can't go follow some other set of rules. Like if I didn't know God, maybe, but I know him, I belong to him. I don't, I don't have a choice here. I don't always want to do it. It's not fun to do it, but, but it, it's the only choice to make. I know we want and expect blessing and prosperity because we've experienced so much of that. I don't know, it may not always happen. There may be times where we're asked to make a choice and we have to make a choice that's going to cost us. These guys were unwilling to compromise. They were willing to step up into a moment and be and do the only things they knew how to do and be the only, the only people they knew how to be. They were followers and children of the Most High God who they belonged to. And so honoring him and living for him was all they could do. Uh, the beginning of World War II, um, 1940, was the year the German forces were crossing Europe uh, with powerful force. Their massive army uh, was more powerful than anything the Allies had. And the English army got backed up, um, had to retreat and got backed up onto a beach called Dun Dunkirk in France. And it was across the English Channel from England. And the army, about 350,000, they were backed in a corner. They were surrounded on every side by Germany, this force of evil in the world. <laughs> and they, the, the, the German military uh, air force flew over them, dropping leaflets saying, you just need to surrender and give up. There's no out. But late in the night, on May 25th, there was a radio signal broadcast with just three words. It went all through England. Of course, England knew what was happening. They knew the situation. But this coming from the commander on the ground in Dunkirk, these three words, but if not. Now, the NIV and other versions, when these young men were pressed into this corner by Nebuchadnezzar, they said to him, yeah, the God we worship and serve, he's able to save us, right? But if not, we still won't bow down. And so because England at the time knew their Bibles, they knew the story and they knew what was being said. Though their army 
was backed up against a wall, they were not going to surrender. They knew that God could save them, but if not, they would not relent against an evil force. In the night, citizens of England got their own personal boats and began to cross the English Channel. And by the next day, they had rescued all 350,000 of those troops in what has been called a miracle. You and I are called to face times of uncertainty, times where we're not sure the outcome, but we're called to carry the message of Jesus into the world. We cannot be silent. Unfortunately, it'd be great if we could, but we don't have that option. Our Savior has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so we carry the message, the truth, the hope. I'm encouraged as almost every week someone tells me that a loved one, a family member, somebody they know is starting to read the Bible. They're starting to look into it because they're scared of what's going on in the world. So I'm thankful for that. But you and I live in a time where we've got to stand strong. We can't bow down and we'll be asked to. But I want to encourage you that you were born for such a time as this. We were born. We're here on the earth with the uh, precious message of the gospel, the good news that has the power to save the world. Stand strong. Don't bow down. The God you serve is able to save you. (laughs) I don't care what it looks like is going to happen. He's able to save you from anything, but even if he doesn't, we need to stand strong to show the world that God is real. God, thank you for entrusting us with this message. Thank you for allowing us to live in times of uncertainty that are a little scary, a little unsettling in a lot of ways, and yet you, the God of the universe, continues to walk with us, alongside us. You promised to be with us. And God, we pray for miracles. We pray that you would use us to show the world that you exist. But God, help us to be faithful that even if you do not save us, we still will not bow down. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.